You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody, if you want to know about licensing and publishing and everything in between, check out the webinar I'm teaching this Wednesday, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Go to theproducersperspective.com for all the info. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Ken Davenport here. You're listening to the Producers Perspective podcast. Today, we have someone very special, a woman on the show who makes Broadway dreams come true for so many people out there. One of the most important and influential casting directors on Broadway today, Tara Rubin. Welcome, Tara. Thank you. Tara Rubin Casting has been casting Broadway shows since 2001. Check out their website for more details on the history. Uh, they've cast some of Broadway's biggest hits, including in the past few seasons alone, Les Mis, Aladdin, Cats, School of Rock, Jersey Boys, Billy Elliot, uh, and this season's upcoming Dear Evan Hansen, A Bronx Tale, and Miss Saigon. So, Tara, why don't we start with, how did you get into the casting game? Where did this all start for you? I worked for a producer named Lester Osterman, who you probably are one of the only people who know who he was. Sort of. He was a producer and a theater owner and quite a character. Um, I worked for him for a little under a year. At the time I was working for him, he had, he was working out of his apartment on East 54th Street and uh, he had the rights to a play by Emily Mann called Execution of Justice. And it was a brilliant play. She was the director. And um, it was about the trial of uh, Dan White, the man who shot Harvey Milk. This was in 1985 or six. And so it was, and it, 
I'm quite proud of the work that we did on that because it was like Mr. Osterman, me, this crazy general manager who had worked for him, at, you know, at, for years and years and years in a living room on East 54th Street. <laughs> and Mr. Osterman had like owned the Brooklyn Dodgers for a while. He was the Bond clothing heir. He had produced um, Dog, the, uh, Lillian Hellman's can- Candide. I mean, he had... He owned the Morosco Theater. He had done just a million things in his life. And so he was so colorful. And he would walk past my desk, take my hand, dance me around for a second. I'd sit back down and go back to work at a electric typewriter, you know. And and I learned a lot from him. And because I had just kind of started in the theater, I had, prior to that, I had written advertising copy and I had edited some radio commercials at Arista Records and... I had been a copy editor for Fawcett Books, and I had done a lot of other things. And so since I was sort of the classic girl Friday, if the advertising copy came over and he didn't like it, I would like rewrite it and say, well, what do you think about this? So so it was really probably one of the most exciting years of my life working with him. And our casting directors were these two guys named Jeffrey Johnson and Vinnie Lynn. And so when the show closed... And Mr. Osterman moved up to Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, and he was, I think, 70 at that time. Uh, I went to work for them, and I stayed there for 15 years. As a long-winded background, was <laughs> sorry. So this Osterman character, he, he, he intrigues me. What was the like most important thing you took away from your time with him? Any, any big lessons you learned? I'm, I'm obsessed with the ideas of mentors. Yeah. Well, he respected everybody's voice. And so if... You know, if a potential investor came over and he was a 22-year-old who had never really, you know, raised any money before, he'd sit down and give him his whole pitch and, and treat him the way he did all the other investors who, you know, were currently investing on Broadway. He listened to me. If I, you know, if he'd ask me to do things and, and I wouldn't think I would be able to do them, but I could. And he, he ran things on a shoestring, you know, like he could, he could stretch he would always, they would always go to lunch. 11 o'clock, they went to lunch and they would say, you're not going to lunch? And I'd say, no, I have a lot of work to do. I'd have like a can of V8 or something on my desk. And he'd say, get a proper lunch. Like, you know, he was just like such an old fashioned gentleman. He was a really interesting man and, and I have a lot of love and affection for him. So what drew you to the casting process? What excited you about it? Well, it was something I could do. <laughs> I had a background in theater. I had I had studied dramatic literature and I had studied theater academically and I had also gone to like acting school for two years. So I had a good background to be in casting. I understood the value the I understood the vocabulary of talking to actors and talking to directors and I could read plays well because I was an English major, so I you know, I read a lot, I wrote a lot, I loved, and I loved both of those things. So I think I did have, you know, thinking back, a good background for it. What I didn't have was a musical background. I, you know, I don't read music, and I had never really been the person, except for the Sondheim cast recordings, I had never really been the person who sat in my dorm room listening to cast recordings. I was listening to 
Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones, you know? So, so that was what I had to learn very, you know, very quickly. And, and it's not something you can learn quickly that, you know, the history of the musical theater and how to cast a musical and what a musical theater performer should you know, bring to a project. So that was my, I would say my first five years was really concentrating on understanding, you know, how a musical was put together. So you work at Johnson Lift for 15 years. 15 years. It was the big powerhouse agency of that time. I remember right. sending my picture and resume <laughs> off to them so many times, and I'm sure it went in the garbage can. And then you jump out on your own in 2001. Was that scary for you, going out on your own and hanging your own shingle? It was scary, but it was, I knew it was the right time. You know, 15 years is a long time to make up your mind whether or not you're going to go into business. Not, And I hadn't even really been thinking about it. I started to think about it. I had a very sentimental attachment to Vinny and Jeff, but I needed to earn more money. And I was, you know, in, I was 40, in my 40s. And so it was, you know, time to start you know, what am I going to do with act two if I don't start now, you know? So it, it was actually easy to make the decision because I waited so long to do it. And I knew the time was right. And I knew I had to. So how, tell me how the casting process has changed since your days at Johnson Lift and now what's the biggest changes you've seen in the process? The internet, the internet and having everything done through breakdown services and I was just talking about this earlier today when I was the casting assistant, when we had like, I knew that Trevor Nunn and Sean Carey were coming to town for Les Mis auditions. I had to start a week in advance making sure I had all the pictures because the pictures came by messenger from the agents and they were beautiful, glossy pictures, black and white. They were gorgeous. But you know, I didn't print them out. I, I couldn't get them in a second the way I can now. So things like that. Uh, were are completely different today and research you know I used to lug around theater indexes to go home and read theater indexes trying to think like who are the guys who would be in their 40s now and this is what Vinny taught me you know I'd go back 20 years in the theater index see like who were those guys then because the guy who played that part 20 years ago is exactly the kind of guy I need now so I would you know I was lugging heavy books around trying to do my research so now I can do all of that in a second Um, so that's a huge just from the practical point of view of being a casting director I would say that is one of the biggest changes and I think the other changes of course there's the whole star driven part of it but at the same time, I also think that Broadway is more welcoming of newcomers than they've ever been. I mean, look at your Spring Awakening last year. That company was, except for Krista, that company was, and maybe Andy, that company was largely unknown, and they were embraced, and, and they were embraced individually and as a company. And, you know, you know I think, I think that, that there's a lot of emphasis on star casting, and I understand why. But I also think there's an openness to, you know, we opened School of Rock with Alex Brightman in the, in the, the, the leading role and he's brilliant and it didn't even seem risky or like we were taking a big chance because he was so good. Is there anything about the process from yesteryear that you miss? Anything that hasn't gotten there that you think we've lost? I like that in, I would say I missed having more time. 
Everything needs to be done in an instant. Get me a list. Get me five people. Set up an audition for tomorrow. It's possible to do it because, you know, everything can fly out in a second. But I miss someone sending us a script and we'd all read it. And then Vinny and Jeff and I would sit in the conference room and director and producer come by and we'd talk about the play and what the plans were and, you know, get to know the director a little bit. And sometimes... You know, we meet the director for the first time, the first day of cast. You've probably had a conversation and we've communicated, certainly. And then a week later, we would probably meet again because we'd all been thinking about it. We'd all made lists and put the lists together. And, and so there was, a, there was time for reflection and consideration that I miss sometimes. Has the relationship with agents changed over the years? Because you deal primarily with an actor's agent when you're getting that appointment or... And even letting them know that they got the job. Has that changed in the last 20 years? Yes. In what way? They have a more aggressive role in the process. They decide who, you know, they'll say, well, he's not coming into audition twice. He's going straight to the callbacks. And I don't understand why this person isn't getting an offer. And there's a much more active and I say aggressive and I do think it is aggressive, but I don't mean aggressive in a, a pejorative way necessarily. I actually am using the word rather objectively, you know, but yeah, that there's, the, I guess they have more power than, than they used to. And um, so the, I think the agents and agents who, you know, everybody has an agent and actors who don't need managers have managers, you know, every, everybody has an agent and a manager. And so, you know, if I'm, we're auditioning someone for in the early stages of his career. The agent and the manager, understandably, want us to treat that person as if he has more seniority in, in his in the field than he really does. And so there's a tremendous amount of, you know, talking to the agent and talking to the manager. And in the old days I would have phoned out that appointment. It would have been taken or not, and that would have been the end of it, you know. But I, so I think those are two things that there's there are a lot of people who are very early career who were being asked to treat as if they are a little more established than they actually are, I think, sometimes. You know? And it's just, I love actors, so that part of it is okay. It's just time consuming. So talk to me about this, what I call the dreaded offer only. Do you, which for those of you who may not know, this is when an actor will come in for an audition, but says, I just, but I'll take an offer, right? Do you find that that is, that offer only is more popular now than it was before you're hearing this from more people? Sure. You, you, you know, in 1990, Bernadette Peters, you know, might have, was offer only for a play or a musical, but, you know, there were, there's a very short list of actors who required an offer in order to participate in a project. And now it seems as if as soon as an actor has any measure of success or acclaim or, or praise, the sense that that person has, is at the very top of things is accelerated, shall we say. So, you know, one success and the person is offer only or, or offer only for regional theater, even when it, and, and, and you just have to, I have to stop and say, did you read this? It's Sarah Rule's play. 
you know, she, you know and, and and usually we I can turn it around and get people to understand, but uh, you know, to categorically say offer only for regional theater, we're talking about some of the finest theater that's happening in our in the world and the American regional theater, you know, and so the idea that someone would you know, categorically not be able to audition for that just that seems a little ridiculous to me. Talk about the audition process itself. So what do you look for when someone walks in the room for that first time? What, do you, what are you looking for or hoping for? Well, I always say, I mean, you know, each project is different. So you're looking for different types of people for different for each project. And that's probably the most important thing you need to do to get started is who are the right people to tell this story? And what is that tone? What are those people like? Are they bright and and you know, do, are they people made of primary colors? Are they people made of pastels? Are they people, you know, and so there's that part of it. But as far as the individual, I think you mean when an individual walks in the room, I would say probably the actors who have that gift of being able to share who they are easily are are the are lovely. They, you get to know them easily. You get You get to figure out who they are and where they fit in either the world of the play or just the world of my office and projects that I'm working on. So I think when that can happen, we jump ahead a lot of steps. But I don't have to see him again in order to think, you know, is that just an off day? Or who was he really? I couldn't quite get if he was, you know, really super soft inside or if he was... Is he cold or is he shy or is he warm or is he a little too warm? You know, like, so I guess just being able to kind of show me who you are is, I love that. I look for that. Besides obviously being extraordinarily talented, is there anything that an actor can do from a marketing perspective to get the attention of someone like you? I always say hard work is the best thing that an actor can do because gimmicky things or you know like mailing campaigns actors used to do that I remember a, a woman who sent a letter in a lavender envelope every Tuesday and she wanted to be in Lee Miz I think or um, like those kinds of things make us think that you're not really taking it all very seriously you think it's something that you can use a, a marketing tool to show how great you are I think when an actor comes in and, and she's prepared and she's, it's clear that she has brought her full self to the audition, that's the best way to get my attention. So one of the things I always am amazed whenever I work with casting directors, including when I've worked with you, is that you not only have to be able to find great talent, dig through all these corners and, and down these alleys to find these great talent, but then you have to be in the room with Many different types of people, directors, producers, writers, and you have to mediate these discussions, right? Talk to me, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that part of the job and how you have to be the ultimate diplomat and negotiate to try to find the best person for the job. How do you work with writers and producers? Well, I feel incredibly fortunate because... I work with so many people who are really at the top of their field. And it seems to me, in my experience at least, that those are the people who are the easiest to work with. If you sit down with Des Mackinoff, Jerry Zaks, 
Susan Stroman, you're going to have a pleasant day because they're so experienced and they're, they're, you know, their imaginations are limitless and they are collaborators. And so for the most part, I don't feel like there's a tremendous amount of negotiating that goes on in musicals. There, there happens to be the fact that people have to dance and people have to sing and people have to be able, you know, because of the economics of the theater, people have to, also be able to cover all the principal roles. And if, you know, so that negotiation has to happen because we know the dance department has to be able to put together uh, dance numbers that are brilliant, but the score needs to be served. And when the star is out, that guy has to go on and, and be, and, and play the leading role. That's, that's more, that's when the, I find that negotiating happens. But I think most casting directors are people, I think, who can read signals and kind of live in the questions and, and the lifey behavior and the kind of ineffable stuff is very clear to us. And so there are ways to see that, I don't know, I'm making this up, but the dance department is feeling a little slighted. And so there are ways to try to steer the discussion toward that or that one great dancer who we can kind of highlight right now and see that they're actually are going to have great people to work with. And then I always say the secret to my success is that letting people think it's their idea. So, you know, if like just put that photo and resume on the table and then someone says, hey, wait a minute, what about him? And I say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Now I'll never be able to do that again because I've, I've said it publicly, right? <laughs> what do you do if you disagree with the way that everyone is going? I'm sure that's had to happen a few times in your career where everyone else is like this person, this person, and you know in your heart that that's just not the right way to go. What do you do? It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because it has happened more than once and not frequently, but it's... It, you have to hope that you're wrong, even though you know you're not. And you have to trust that your team will make it as good as it will possibly be, even though they're making a mistake. And kind of let it go. Hope that it runs long enough that maybe the person that you know is the right guy gets his opportunity to do it. And, you know, it's like in drama school, I remember a teacher who said, when a director gives you a note... Always say thank you and take that note and do it to your best ability. Don't resist it. Don't criticize it or, uh, or analyze it and because it will be clear whether the note works if you do it properly. You know. So and I think I've always sort of applied that to my, my work in casting when I take a lot of notes from directors and writers and I try to I try to make do what, exactly what they've told me to do sometimes and then hope that there will also be enough bandwidth in the imagination for a few other suggestions that weren't necessarily you know in their imagination at that time and and maybe be able to open things up you know I, I would never 
I don't think I have ever said to a director, I don't think that's right. I don't think we need that person. I think we need, I don't, I wonder if there is a casting director who's done that, who said, I don't think it should be that way. I think it should be this. Even if I think that I'll find another way to see if I can prove it or not. You know, if so. Sounds like a great way, not only to work, but also to live. If <laughs> someone tells you something, yeah, okay, let me look at that and see, see how to make that a little bit better. What's the biggest mistake that actors make when they walk in the room? But it, I think the biggest mistake is when they don't read the signals. You know, when they don't understand that no one reached out to to shake your hand. So it isn't necessary for you to approach the table and shake everybody's hand. You know, we will let us set that tone. And, you know, some teams like us to introduce every person. And if there's somebody illustrious at the table, you want to say Here's Susan Stroman to see you today. Here's Jerry Sachs. You know, it's like you you know that it's an event for the actor. So you want to make sure that that introduction is made. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to shake hands and spend a minute and a half talking to each other. So I think actors should try to read those signals and, and understand that we're going to help them by setting the tone that that works for our team, you know, and. I think being, so I think that's sort of being overly friendly and assuming sort of maybe a closer relationship with the people in the room than actually exists. That's sometimes a mistake. The person is probably a wonderful person and it's just like maybe nervous behavior or whatever. But the fact is that the team only has that behavior to kind of get to, you know, to judge you by. And so I think that's probably it. That's a good one. I'm laughing over here because it bothers me when they come to shake my hand and it just takes so much time in the whole bit and I just want to get on with it. And I'm laughing because I've been in audition rooms with you where you guys were so good at like, hey, this is the theme. Okay, there you go. We'll direct you over there. Now you can <laughs> sing your song, uh, which I love. So we, we talked a little bit about star casting. So... This process, do you enjoy this process of, tell me a little bit about, I call you, which I have, and said, hey, I've got the rights to this play. I need, I need a star. Then, then what? I mean, it, initially, it's really exciting. I think it depends on how realistic the creative team is. There are some teams for whom it's very, what can I say, the, the process of star casting works. You don't always, even with like your star directing and, you know, team, you don't always get to the place where you want it to be because stars really don't enjoy working in the theater all that much. You know, they have to do eight shows a week. They only, you know, they don't get time off. They have to live like monks in order to, you know, be able to get through it all the time. And they don't earn as much money. So the incentive for stars to Um, As one manager said to me one time, take time off from his career to be on Broadway. (laughs) Um, So for, for, we always have to, I just always hope when a team comes to me and says that we need to attach a star, that they understand that all of that is a given, that stars like to work with directors who they feel they'll be in good hands and directors who have a lot of accolades and so they feel you know, they feel like if I'm going to do theater, I'm going to do it with someone who is at the top of the field. So 
So there's that part of it. And also the names have to be realistic for that we're going for what it is. You know, I can't tell you how many times people have said, you know, do you think we can get, I don't know, like Hugh Jackman's name comes up a lot in casting conversations. And it's kind of hard to deter people from, I think that's the hardest part for me is when there's, there's not a sense of realism of how this is really going to work. And also, I think sometimes people think that if you just, you know, we'll, we'll do it when we get the right star. Well, I find that when it's that nebulous, you don't make much progress because you just keep in this kind of this loop of, well, yeah, he's available. Yeah, he's, you know, he, yeah, he might do it. He, you know, and it just it, you never really make the kind of progress that you want to make if you're saying it's next year. It's, you know, it's January 10th. It's for six months. And of course, they want to know that you already have a theater and financing is there. So there's just so many layers to it. I kind of enjoy it on some levels, as long as there's a sense of, of realism about what where we might end up and, and how we're going to get there. Do you think casting directors should get Tony Awards? I do. All right, here's your pitch. Here's your chance. Lobby for it. I let Bernie lobby for it. <laughs> it's your turn now. Here's Wh the thing. Why? Because casting directors design the cast. We have cast. We have Tony Awards for all the other design designers, and the casting director collaborates with the creative team in the same way. The opposition to cast to there being a casting director Tony Award usually goes like this. They don't really make the decision. They, it's the director. We, no one would really know how to vote because you don't really know what they really do. Well, I don't think the average Tony voter knows what the sound designer does. I don't think they know exactly how William Ivy Long goes about his process, but they see the costumes on the stage and they know whether or not they're appropriate and exciting for telling the story. And that's exactly what casting directors do. And yes, sometimes it's a star is attached, but unless it's a one person show, there's still an enormous contribution that the, the casting director has to make. We have to kind, we have to find the people who, you know, who are the, we have to make the village for that's on the stage. So yes, of course I do, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the answer to that, but I wanted you to say it. Of all the casts you've put together, do you have a favorite? Oh, I know it's like I a favorite kid. but I, And you don't have to name a specific performer, but of all the shows you've cast. I mean, they're, they're different. I can name a couple. I really loved casting Contact. That was really exciting because we we made it up, you know, as with... And so I was just bringing in great dancers. And I know, I'm sure it was all completely technicolor in her brain already. But that was really exciting. Billy Elliot was really exciting. So that was a long process. And trying to find guys who could dance the way they needed to dance and still seem like minors and seem like they were denizens of a world that was really different from New York City. And the political message was meaningful to me, so I think that cast was really important. School of Rock was so fun because we had never tried to find kids who played instruments before. We had cast a lot of children over the years, but I'm proud of that cast. 
you know, I'm really proud of the Bombay Dreams cast. Oh my gosh, I love it. You know, that was a, we had casting in um, Toronto and Vancouver, LA, New York, London, Chicago. And we cast people in every country, in every city. And I was proud of that cast. I thought they were really good. And I thought, I thought that they, I think we were just, I never felt like they got the attention they deserved, you know? Being half Indian, my, my roots were very proud of that production and all my people up there on the stage. <laughs> Uh, so you've been working on Broadway for several decades now. How do you think Broadway is doing today versus when you got into the biz? Oh, I think it's so healthy. I think it's, I thought last season was, I mean, even if Hamilton hadn't happened last season, look at what else happened last season. You know, from Spring Awakening to School of Rock to Color Purple, that production was amazing. I don't. I think we should have holler if you hear me, and we should have she loves me, and we should have everything in between, and I, we pretty much do. Are you finding that uh, the diversity in casting issue is getting better on Broadway, or more people coming to you, more open to different pastel colors, as you said on on stage than before? Are we making progress? I think we're making progress. I think that. These are critical years because we have to make sure that the last year was not anomalous and that, that we that we continue. So I, I feel like the the time is now to kind of catch up to where television and film are, and particularly television that's way ahead of, of the theater in terms of diversity. And just looking at, you know, the old fashioned colorblind casting that I they're just so much far further ahead than we are. So, but I'm proud of the strides that have been made. Anything we can do? Anything you think the industry can do to just have uh, wider eyes when we when we look at this stuff? It really needs to come. Producers taking a, a firm or you know taking a strong position that there must be diversity in the cast is critical because it's. It's hard for the casting director to make the point with the creative team because they're creating it. But if the boss says, sorry, we're not doing it unless we have, even if it's just simply that, we're not doing it unless some of these characters reflect what really is happening in our world today. So I think that you could take that role. <laughs> you can insist upon it. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question, which is perfect for you because you cast the genie. Uh, so I want you to imagine that the genie comes to you and says, I want to thank you for giving me a job. Uh, and also, uh, thank you for your tremendous dedication to the theater and all the work that you've done. And I'm going to grant you one wish because of all your hard work. What's the one thing that drives you nuts about Broadway? It gets you mad, and you're such a sweet, lovely person, and so nice to work with, and also just chat with. What makes you angry? Pounding the tables because you're so upset that you would ask that this genie wish away. The lack of opportunity for women and people of color. The fact that, you know, a lot of the institutional theaters still aren't hiring women to be directors and still aren't hiring uh, still aren't producing plays that are written by women. And the broad mosaic of our world is just, you know, that, we're, that we have to push 
it forwards much and that it, you know, I think that would be the thing. If I, if we didn't have to push it forward and it already existed, I think I would be happy about that. Me too. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us here today. Thanks to all of you for listening. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. We will see you next time. Don't forget, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock Eastern Time, everything you wanted to know about licensing but were afraid or not afraid to ask, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock. See you there. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.